Hi, this is Susan Spratt for Healthy Bites, a podcast supported by Duke Well and the Duke Population Health Management Office. As you may have heard, we are talking about medications for type 2 diabetes. Today, we're going to discuss insulin secretagogues, in other words, sulfonylureas and metaglinides. And if you've listened to our other diabetes medication podcast, you might have noticed the format goes something like this. In what circumstance would you add a sulfonylurea? Who is not a candidate for a sulfonylurea? What are the side effects? Are there any benefits to sulfonylureas besides glucose lowering? And any interesting stories about history of sulfonylureas and any new literature about this class of drugs. Of all the diabetes drugs out there, I think most of us are fairly comfortable with sulfonylureas. For the longest time, it was the only oral drug for type 2 diabetes. And then along came metformin, and the way we did things shifted to metformin first at diagnosis of type 2. But I think a lot of people definitely use sulfonylureas as the second drug drug to add to metformin, or even as the single drug for diabetes if patients don't tolerate metformin. It's certainly the cheapest. Is there really anything else to learn? Yes, there actually is. In a few moments, I will be interviewing Dr. Mark Feingloss on his opinion on sulfonylurea therapy, as well as some interesting stories about the history of sulfonylureas, and then we'll look towards some new literature. First, let's quickly run through the basics. The main side effect of sulfonylureas is hypoglycemia, especially in patients who are elderly, have renal impairment, or have erratic eating schedules. Patients on sulfonylurea therapy should be cautioned that their risk of hypoglycemia is higher if the patient skips a meal, uses alcohol, has chronic kidney disease, also takes salicylates, fibric acid, or warfarin, or if the patient has gotten out of the hospital recently. We recommend glimepiride or glipizide over gliburide or the first-generation sulfonylureas. Gliburide is considered a second-generation sulfonylurea, but still has a long half-life and also has renally cleared metabolites that hang around even longer. Thus, in patients with chronic kidney disease, we recommend glipizide or glimepiride. And there may be some cardiovascular reasons, which Dr. Feingloss will discuss, to recommend glimepiride. Another side effect of both sulfonylureas and metaglinides is weight gain. Also remember that patients with sulfa allergies can be allergic to sulfonylureas. If that's the case, you can consider a metaglinide, either neglitinide or a paglinide. The benefit to these drugs is that they do not contain a sulfa moiety, and so patients usually don't have allergies to those. They're short-acting, so they need to be taken with food. For patients who have erratic eating schedule, this might be a good choice. They aren't as strong. So for patients who have too much hypoglycemia with sulfonylureas, these patients might respond less robustly to the glenide. So on one hand, that might be a good thing because hypoglycemia may be less. But on the other hand, they might not respond robustly enough and it may not control their glucose. But certainly something to consider. Repaglinide is metabolized in the liver So it's also a good choice for someone with kidney disease. So now we're gonna turn it over to Dr. Mark Feingloss. Mark, give us some information about yourself. Well, I've been at Duke ever since I was an intern. I'm professor of medicine, division of endocrinology. Spent a lot of time doing research on the treatment of type two diabetes, 
particularly the pharmacotherapy of it and the behavioral issues related to it. I've already talked a little bit about sulfonylureas and I want your expertise on that because I know you have done research on sulfonylurea therapy. But my first question, which is a question I'm asking everyone, is what medication do you add when a patient is on metformin and their glucose is not at goal? It really is individualized at this point and it depends on what kind of insurance or other monies they have. So if someone doesn't have a lot of money and it looks like they still are making a fair amount of their own insulin, I add a sulfonylurea. Uh, I particularly do that if their fasting glucose is kind of elevated. The difference is going to be the other agent that I would consider if I'm going to use another oral agent is a DPP-4 inhibitor. That's only going to give you insulin secretion related to meals. So if the major problem is post-meal, then that's probably a better choice and there's much, much less risk of any hypoglycemia. If their fasting is kind of elevated, if it looks like they need increased insulin secretion all the time, then I would rather use the sulfonylurea. So those are still my two okay. top choices. Great. So talk to us about the way sulfonylureas work. So they do two things, one which everybody knows, the other which everybody's forgotten, except for me because it was my data uh, <laughs> originally. So, and it's what makes them so interesting. Certainly they increase insulin secretion and they increase insulin secretion all the time unrelated to food, mm -hmm. which is both a strength and a weakness. Mm -hmm. It's a strength if you want that increased insulin secretion to always be there unrelated to meals. It's a weakness because there is a risk of hypoglycemia. But the other thing that they do is they are insulin sensitizers, and they're not bad insulin sensitizers at all. And that's an additional strength that everybody forgets about, but they really can be used for that. They're quite safe drugs. There's been talk over many years of whether there's a cardiovascular risk. Nobody's ever really proven that there is. And otherwise, their profile is very, very safe. They've been used for so many years that they're very well understood and well known. And I think that makes them important. All right, so I want to talk about the cardiovascular risk in a few minutes, but what about the meglidinides, the non-sulfa insulin secretagogues? How do they work in uh, reference to sulfonylureas? So, you know, they never found a, a market because of the way that they were introduced, which was probably unfortunately. What they are is actually the non-sulfa part of the sulfonylurea. They bind to the same receptor. They just, on the beta cell, they just hit it faster and they're off faster, so they're really focused on meal-related insulin secretion. But that's because they're taken at meals. What happens is you get insulin secretion when you take them, regardless of whether you're eating or not, mm -hmm. but they're very, very focused, so they're only there for a few hours. Uh, actually quite good drugs. Again, if you want something that is going to hit at a very specific time and then be gone. In large amount, they've been displaced by DPP-4 inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's been recommended that we consider sulfonylurea therapy for patients with MODI, which is maturity onset diabetes of youth, as you know. But how would we know someone had MODI without doing expensive genetic testing? Well, unless you have a really good profile, you don't want to spend the money on what is, in fact, very expensive genetic testing. But they've got to show you a very specific pattern. They've got to be young. They've got to have a parent with diabetes that also happened very young, and they've got to not be ketoacidotic. Mm -hmm. So for example, a classic might be 
an, an 18 year old kid who's a football player who gets picked up on routine physical and whose glucose is 250 but feels fine. Mm -hmm. and that's where that becomes important because such a person might not do as well on insulin and it might really get in the way of what he wants to do with his life. Right, so it is important to think about in younger adults who don't present either with what we think of as type 2 obese or younger adults who have a strong family history. Sulfonyl urea therapy is the main drug we'd want to treat someone with. Yeah, well, three you, of the five cases. Yeah, you can, you can try them on metformin and you'll see that they don't do as well. Mm -hmm. Sulfonyl urea is really work and yeah, people like Hattersley in, in uh, Exeter in England, who's very interested in Modi, has people who have been found after 30 years or more of of insulin therapy, takes them off, puts them on sulfonylureas, it works. All right, what's the deal with sulfonylureas and cardiac risk? So you alluded that we really don't think that there's an increased cardiac risk. There seems to be a benefit to metformin and cardiac risk, and so we think sulfonylurea is, is neutral. Where did all these questions start, and why do you think they started in the first place, and, and you feel that it's been resolved? Well, they go back to the 1960s, to what was in fact the first federally funded multi-center trial, which was the University Group Diabetes Program, the purpose of which was to look at, with the crude methods that were available then, the control of diabetes. And they divided people into four different groups, people with, with what we would call now type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. They divided them into a sulfonylurea group, into a group where they got a set dose of insulin, into a group where they got a variable dose of insulin, and into a placebo group. Later they added a group with the, the precursor of metformin, which is fenformin. And they followed them along. And what they found, while well, they're looking again crudely for control because there weren't easy ways to measure glucose and people couldn't measure their own glucose except in urine then, but what they found was an increased incidence of cardiovascular deaths in the sulfonylurea group lot of flaws in this. The deaths were skewed to just a couple of centers. There was no increased incidence of cardiovascular disease, just deaths. So what did it mean? We really don't know, but it provoked a firestorm of commentary. People literally yelling at each other <laughs> across aisles and meetings because people had vested interests in this. And it ended up for a while putting a black box on sulfonylureas via the FDA saying, there was this increased risk of cardiovascular death. Other studies never showed this, and people keep pulling out ways of looking at it over the years. You still see things periodically, but nobody's ever really clearly demonstrated anything, with the exception of one drug, which is uh, gliburide. That particular sulfonylurea, which behaves rather differently from others, is an issue and shouldn't be used. What it does is it interferes with a process called ischemic preconditioning, by which recurrent episodes of ischemia cause the heart to somehow learn to protect itself and limit those areas of ischemia. Glyburide blocks that effect. So if you've got someone with cardiovascular disease, probably not a very good drug. It also causes more hypoglycemia than any of the other sulfonylureas. There are much safer ones. It doesn't need to be used. But the others, I feel very confident in. What sulfonylureas were available in the uh, 60s and 70s? Was gliburide available? No, the, the, when the University Group Diabetes uh, study was done, it was only talbutamide, okay. first generation sulfonylurea. The later generations were 
unknown at that okay. time. Okay. Even though glibdurite is a second generation, we still try to avoid it because of this link to uh, preventing the heart from protecting itself from ischemia. Exactly. And even if it weren't for that, the amount of hypoglycemia it can cause would make me limit its use anyway. All right, talk to me about the use of sulfonylurea therapy with insulin, because a lot of people like to stop sulfonylureas when patients are transferred to insulin. What is your thought on this? Yeah, I actually think it's a mistake to stop uh, until you've really got people under control. And the reason is because, and this to some degree holds for all the oral agents, just because somebody is running out of endogenous insulin doesn't mean that the other factors for which you're using an oral agent are all useless. They may provide a very significant benefit. We actually did a paper some years ago where we looked at people who were taking more than 40 units of insulin a day and in not very good control, and we gave them either glipizide or placebo for three months, crossed them over, and did the other arm. And what we found was that in these people, we could get better control on smaller doses of insulin when the sulfonylurea was present than when it wasn't. And that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, why there's benefit. Again, that insulin sensitizing effect is very useful. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you've got some endogenous insulin and you can protect it by keeping people in good control, it's nice to have because it works much better in the body than exogenous insulin does. Endogenous insulin 70% of it, give or take, sees the liver first pass, mm -hmm. which is very nice. Exogenous insulin, 70%, give or take, sees the periphery first pass. Mm -hmm. That means that the fat cells see it before the liver does, and that's not as, as useful. So I like to utilize endogenous insulin when I can. What I will do is, once I've got somebody under good control, is I will withdraw the oral agent to see if it really is doing something. If the, the glucose starts to go back up, then I'll, I'll replace it. I don't believe you should just leave people on drugs indefinitely right. without testing the waters. Right. I think there's several interesting points there. Just because someone needs more insulin, they might not be making as much insulin as they need. It doesn't mean they're not making any insulin. Mm -hmm. And so the oral agents we have, especially sulfonylureas, can still be working in the two mechanisms that you're Exactly. You're and there is a failure rate in sulfonylureas because People with type 2 diabetes often over the years will run short of insulin. But we still, after all these years, don't know if that's a natural part of type 2 diabetes or if that's because of chronic poor, poor control. Even modestly poor control is fairly toxic to the beta cell. So I don't know if you really controlled someone very well up front if they would run out of insulin or if they'd be able to retain it. So I've heard some people say that sulfonylureas cause beta cells to burn out. Yeah, and there really isn't any proof of that. Yeah. Um, if you look at the UK PDS study, where they took people with new onset diabetes and they put them on a variety of, of different agents, they followed curves. They published a wonderful graph looking at insulin secretory reserve in people on various drugs. And although initially, of course, with the sulfonylurea, the rate goes up, if you then follow them all going down, you see that the slopes are identical whether it's a sulfonylurea or metformin or whatever it is. There really is no evidence that they will do that. What causes beta cells to burn out is hyperglycemia, even modest hyperglycemia. If you normalize somebody, then they retain some insulin secretory capacity in a lot of situations. 
Okay, great. This has been absolutely invaluable. Any other pearls you'd like to give us? I think that when one is looking at the newly available agents right now, mm -hmm. I think the important thing to recognize is the small number of patients and the, the carefully selected patients that are used to get FDA approval. And my bias is that I like to wait and see post-marketing data. Mm -hmm. And the sulfonylureas, which are again cheap, easy to use, very well tolerated, have been used for many, many years. There aren't at this point going to be any surprises. So I like the old standards. There's a lot of reason, financial is not a trivial one, for sticking with what we know works unless there's a clear benefit to something else. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, but before we leave, I want to end with something more fun. I know you're a big foodie, and I used to see you at Foursquare every time I went there. Where are you eating now? Yeah, this is a problem because <laughs> there's nothing quite like that around. So I've been going to a lot of ethnic restaurants to try them out. For something that's a little more upscale, I've been going over to Il Palio, uh, okay. which is very, very good. Yes, yeah. But it's not within quick drive. No, it's not house. a quick drive. Yeah. There's <laughs> nothing, nothing like it. I don't know if you remember this, but once you told me that your wife, Susan, taught you more about carbohydrate counting than you had ever learned as a patient or as a provider. Mm -hmm. What did she teach you? How to eyeball things with, with greater facility and really focusing on packaging. Uh -huh. a lot better and what it actually says because there are a lot of surprises. Say for example you're looking at uh, in the grocery store at cereals and you look at the carbohydrate content of the cereal. What you have to do is notice that they trick you because they will change the portion mm -hmm. size mm -hmm. <laughs> for the various mm -hmm. kinds so that some cornflakes with, with strawberries might be a different portion size than with blueberries or something mm -hmm. like that. And she's made me focus much more carefully on those nuances. It makes a difference. Right. I think that's so important because, as you said, you've been at Duke for a very long time studying diabetes, teaching diabetes, and uh, a lot of folks don't really want to go see the diabetes educator or the nutritionist, and it could make a huge difference in their control. Nuances make differences, and you can understand the broad aspects. To really do well, you have to really focus on details, and people who understand the details can give you a lot of pearls. Mm -hmm. Tell me again, you are also in the Department of Geology here, right? Earth and Ocean Science. Earth and Ocean Science. And, but you studied geology. I did. And you have the a rock collection. I have a very large mineral collection. <laughs> I guess you don't call it rocks. We do. <laughs> <laughs> What's the latest big gem out there that you think is going to make some news? Uh, gem or mineral? <laughs> Either one. There's actually, well, for both. The, for minerals right now, there's, there's actually a study going on because there's a, a group of people who believe that certain minerals are the key to understanding the origins of life on Earth, mm. uh, and that their occurrence helped facilitate the development of organic molecules. And so they are looking for certain carbon-based minerals to help develop this theory, and they have certain predictions of minerals that should exist if the theory is correct. And, and I'm a member of, of that team to help people figure out if they think they have a new carbon mineral what to do with it. And some of the predicted minerals have already started to show up. So that's a really important theory if you're looking at what caused life to exist right. on Earth. So that's kind of fun. 
terms of gemstones. My favorite is an oldie but a goodie called Alexandrite, which is fun because it changes colors depending oh. on the light source. Oh. It was named for Alexander, the Tsar Alexander of Russia in the early 1800s because the royal colors of Russia were uh, purple and green. And it is green in daylight, and it is purple in candlelight or artificial light. Oh, wow. And, it's, it's gorgeous. and that's my favorite. That's, it's quite a rare thing. But, uh, is it expensive? Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to be able to go out and buy some Alexandrite you, you, you could, but easily is the uh -huh. operant term. It's found now in a couple other places besides the Ural Mountains in Russia, but to me it's, it's one of the most beautiful things there is. Well, thank you so much. You're a treasure trove of knowledge. <laughs>